0: So I'm going to be preaching this morning from Acts chapter 10, verse 17, all the way down to 11, 18. So it's a quite a long section, but as we'll see, there's a lot of repetition there, so it's not, it won't take as, as long as you think to get through it. But the passage is long, so, so let's, let's hear God's word from, uh, from Acts chapter 10, verse 1 to 11, uh, 11 18. He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. They became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said to him, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. <clears throat> when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, I stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remember- remembered before God. Sent, therefore, to, send therefore to Joppa and ask for one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You've been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, <clears throat> but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that, we, that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of Jesus Christ, sort of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews, To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, who had also, that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, Three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you the message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. May He write its eternal truths upon our hearts for His glory and for the building of His church. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we praise You for Your mercies, for Your grace that has been poured out on us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We praise you, Almighty God, for the fact that your Holy Spirit has been poured out on all who are trusting in Christ, for those who are truly born again, have been filled with the Holy Spirit, even as the apostles, even as these Gentiles. Lord, we are also Gentiles who have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We also were strangers to the covenants of promise, separated from you, separated from your chosen people. Yet, Lord, in Christ, you have brought us near. Again, through the gospel of Christ. Lord, as we consider this passage, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to work in the hearts of your people. Lord, for those who are truly saved, to confirm these things and to to remind us of these things, to point us to Christ and for our continual need for Christ. And Lord, for the, to point us to the fact that all who, of us who trust in Christ are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we're also confident that Your Holy Spirit can fall even on those who are as yet unbelievers, regenerating hearts, replacing rebellion against God with worship of God, replacing unbelief in Christ, with belief in Christ. And Lord, I pray even now confident that if it is your will through these weak words that I preach, that they have power through your spirit to accomplish that for which you send them. Do work, I pray, in hearts for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, We've been hearing quite a bit lately uh, about the revival at Asbury University in Kentucky. What began as a weekly chapel service with about 20 students continued for over two weeks as people crowded into the auditorium and and as soon into every available space on campus, worshiping God. Of course, the critics responded. Some have criticized the fact that, that women have preached Others have criticized the inclusion of insipid worship songs. Others have criticized the emphasis on emotional response. And frankly, these things concern me as well. However, there are other, other criticisms that are unfounded. And, and some of these criticisms really are not true. So for example, some have criticized the endorsement of false teacher Todd Bentley. However, when Todd Bentley went and tried to speak at the revival, he he was turned away. Others have criticized an apparent lack of preaching. However, I've also read from a respected source that there's been preaching throughout, included a focused sermon every evening. Some have criticized that the gospel is not being preached, especially a lack of preaching of repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. However, I've heard others including a uh, a former professor of mine from seminary who actually went there to check it out for himself, who said he'd heard the message of repentance and faith being proclaimed and had seen people actively repenting of their sins. So what do you what do we do with all this? Is aspirate Is the Aspen revival a true revival or is it more in vain with the second great awakening, which in large part was neither great nor an awakening? I see five key takeaways. And this, as you'll see, will relate to our passage. One, an emotional response is different from emotionalism. Emotional responses are not necessarily evidence of revival nor evidence of false revival. An emotional response can and often does come from fleshy reasons, from manipulation of, of a, by a speaker or being swept up by the crowd. And, and there's, there's very probably some of that is taking place at Asprey. Or emotional response can be a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart uh, of a Christian or of a new believer. The, the biblical narratives bear testimony of both, both of fleshly emotionalism and of genuine emotional response through the work of the Holy Spirit. Two, the presence of unbiblical practices is cause for concern. However, their presence at Asprey does not negate the possibility that there is indeed a real work of the Holy Spirit taking place. It's possible that, that false teachers and false Christians can be used and are used by the devil in an attempt to subvert or to cast doubt on a real work of the Holy Spirit. As Jonathan Edwards, who was was used of God almightily mightily in the the first Great Awakening, wrote, "If many delusions of Satan appear at the same time, that there is a great religious concern while it prevails, is it not an ar- it is not an argument?" That, that that work in general is not the work of God any more than it's an argument in Egypt that there were no true miracles wrought there by the hand of God because janis and Jambres wrought false miracles at the same time by the hand of the devil. He says that, that revival is not perfect in the sense of the apostolic sense and so we can't say that there's never going to be any error mixed in with truth. Three, critics are saying that there's a lack of preaching, especially a lack of preaching the gospel. But others are saying that they're seeing these things. Now, we aren't there to witness this for ourselves. And, and so we need to be careful here not to jump on the bandwagon, but we need to be equally careful not to burn the bandwagon. Four, from several eyewitness testimonies, people appear to be turning away from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And I really hope that's the, cre- that's the case. If it is the case, then the fruit will remain. It's easy to to fake so-called spiritual gifts, but it's a lot harder to fake the fruit of the Holy Spirit, at least for the long term. In Galatians 5, 22-23, the Apostle Paul lists love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And this fruit will be evident in the lives of those who have truly been revived by the Holy Spirit. Now, they may not be fully formed initially, but they will be evident over the lifetime of a true believer as growth in godliness manifests itself through the power of the Holy Spirit. And five, and this, this one is really the most pertinent to our passage. There is a major difference between revival and revivalism. Between revival and revivalism. The first is a work of the Holy Spirit and is Christ-centered. The other is a work of man and is man-centered. So there's a difference between true revival and revivalism, but there is also a difference between biblical judgment and judgmentalism. We need to be discerning, but we need to be very careful not to make judgments based on our tradition or our opinion, but based on God's word and God's word alone. True revival, that is a work of the Holy Spirit, will produce the lasting fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, so we think of, of, of what we've seen, that we, we realize that, that there will be false work and true work, even in true revival. But I believe it's too early to tell for certain what's going on at Asbury one way or the other. Now we can and should be hopeful that this is a genuine revival and rejoice at people repenting and professing faith in Jesus Christ while at the same time being cautious and reserving judgment until the facts come in. As Jesus warned, as I said to the kids, John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We need to make biblical judgments, but not to go beyond biblical judgments. The Holy Spirit may do things that are outside of our tradition, outside of our experience, but we must be careful to avoid a critical spirit and to be careful, again, always to only judge biblically. So again, these five points are relevant to our passage, but this last one is in particular a lesson that the Jewish believers, including Peter, needed to learn from what took place here in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 that the Jewish traditions and customs were based on Scripture. But as we will see, they went beyond the Scriptures in their application. And this led to a wrong view of their Gentile neighbors and a failure to understand what the Lord was commanding and what the Lord was doing. Now, I spoke at length last week about about the Old Testament ceremonial laws to, to lay the foundation about it just, so I won't go into it, into it in depth here, but just by, by way of brief review. Again, we, we spoke about the ceremonial laws, but particularly about the food laws, that divided foods into clean and unclean. And remember, the Jews were not allowed to eat anything that was unclean. And we spoke about how the Lord gave Israel these cleanliness laws in order to show that He had set Israel apart for Himself. These were, were, these were a temporary measure in order to protect them from the pagan practices of their Gentile neighbors in Canaan as they were bent about to enter into the promised land. So this was meant to show, again, the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Not because of race, but because of religion. However, the Jews began to show contempt for the Gentiles. Not just for their practices, but even simply for the fact that they weren't Jews. And this was aggravated by Gentile military occupation of Israel repeatedly right to the time of Christ. It was a Roman occupying army that crucified Christ, which in the most bitter of ironies was at the behest of the Jewish ruling council. So that as we saw in Acts chapter 10, 1 to 16, the the double vision that was given to Cornelius and to Peter was about to bring a radical change in the relationship between Jew and Gentile, and and especially in the context of the church. To this point, the church had been made up solely of Jews. Things were beginning to change. There had been revival, remember, among the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and the Ethiopian eunuch as well through the ministry of Philip. But both of these groups were connected with Judaism. Last week we met Cornelius, who also was connected with Judaism. He is identified as a God-fearer, someone who had had aligned himself with Judaism, but had not gone so far as to be circumcised. And so he would have been viewed very much, even though he was... was, favorite in some respect it was still very much an outsider from Judaism this was seen by some Jewish Christians as a serious problem and cause for exclusion from the church that's on this that we're going to focus this morning we dealt with the first two scenes in this passage last weekend and this morning i want to deal with uh, with the last five and Again, it's, there, we'll go through it relatively quickly because there's a lot of repetition of what's happened and what happened in, in the first two scenes. We'll see Peter's meeting with the messengers in, in Acts 10, 17 to 23a. Peter's conversation with Cornelius in 10, b to 33. Peter's sermon in 10, uh, 34 to 43. Cornelius' conversion in ten forty four to 48. And then the church's response in 11 1 to 18. Again, if, if you want to take notes, I'll repeat these as, as we get to them. But as the events in our passage unfold, Luke includes the repetition of the visions received by Cornelius and Peter. Cornelius' vision of the angel who told him to send for Peter, and Peter's corresponding and repeated vision of the sheet being lowered from heaven with all kinds of animals and his being told to rise kill and eat. And remember that Peter recoils with this, saying he has never touched anything common or unclean. However, the Lord tells him, what God has made clean, do not call common. And like Luke's repetition of the testimony of the conversion of Saul, we're going to see this in detail two, two more times in Acts, with the repetition of the events surrounding Cornelius, Luke is showing us just how important these events are to his testimony in Acts. How important these events are in church history. Derek Thomas says that to understand the story of the early church means means understanding the conversions of these two men, Saul and Cornelius. He says it would not be an exaggeration to suggest that between Pentecost and the return of Christ, at the end of the age, the conversions of these two men form the key redemptive moments in the story of the church. So it's happening, just as Jesus had said it would in Acts 1.8. His witnesses have truly gone from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and now they're moving to the ends of the earth. In fact, really, almost all of the rest of Acts is really going to be recounting the the ministry of the church to those outside of of this particular region as they go to the ends of the earth. The people from these groups, so from these Jews, and those who are separated from the Jews, were brought near in Christ, will worship Christ together in the church and they'll worship Christ together for all eternity in glory. The superintendence and sovereignty of God are being highlighted here through the power of the Holy Spirit and through God's providence. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed and people from every nation, tribe, people, and language are being saved and made one in Christ. So the the third scene and the first point for today, Peter's meeting with the messengers from chapter 10, verses 17 to 23. Peter's meeting with the messengers. While Peter was still puzzling over the meaning of the vision, at that very moment, the men who had been sent by Cornelius arrived on the doorstep of Simon the Tanner. At that very moment, And they asked whether this was where Peter was staying. And so they they asked for Peter, and then Luke repeats again that Peter is still pondering the vision. Clearly, it's confusing to him. Clearly, he does not yet understand what it means. What did the unclean animals mean? Why was he told to eat them? Some of the Old Testament scriptures clearly forbade. What did the Lord mean when he said, what God has made clean, do not call common? Now God gives him the answer. The Holy Spirit spoke to him. Again, notice the emphasis here on the work of the Holy Spirit. He said, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So here the Holy Spirit's instructions and providential timing should really remind us of the Holy Spirit's work in and through Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Where where, where Philip had been told directly that he was to rise and to then go, and he was providentially guided to the the chariot that the Ethiopian eunuch was riding in at the very moment when, when this eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53. God's command and God's providence here we see the same thing God's command and God's providence that God is speaking to him and telling him what to do at the very moment that these men arrive so here Peter is now trying to discern what is taking place he's trying to figure out what's happening and the spirit tells him exactly what's happening he said I've I've sent them and he says, you need to go without hesitation. Now, now I just want to, want to talk about that, that verb that, that's, that's translated here, without hesitation. The word is, is probably better translated, make no distinction. Make no distinction. In fact, that's exactly the way that it is used. The ESV translates that way. Flip over to, uh, to Acts chapter 11, uh, verse 12. Again, as Peter is relaying the exact same thing, the Spirit, he says, told me to go with them making no distinction. Making no distinction. So the, the issue here is then, it's not just, oh, what should I do? It's prejudice. Right? It's it's that, again, for as I've said before, there's only one race, the human race. But for, for lack of a better word, it's, it, this is racially driven. He does not want to go and to, to, to go and to, to spend time with these men because they're Gentiles. And so the Spirit is directly commanding him: make no distinction, but rise and go, for I have sent them. Now remember, remember whose roof that Peter is on when this happens. He's on the rooftop of, of Simon the tanner. And we talked about this repeatedly before that as a tanner, Simon would have been ceremonially unclean every day because he was daily coming into contact with the, the carcasses of dead animals. Now, Peter's got no problem apparently living in, the, staying at Simon's house, and, and no problem risking ceremonial uncleanness, at, at least as far as, as in the house of a Jew. But now when it comes to ceremonial uncleanness because of Gentiles, he's like, wait a sec, that's too much. Again, he does not yet understand what's happening. So Peter is being presented as still resistant to the Lord's command from the vision. And remember, he's just gone down with the men to to, to Tabitha's bedside in Joppa. But now his heart is reluctant to, to rise and to go with these men to Cornelius in Caesarea. But now at the Holy Spirit's command, Peter obediently goes down to them and they tell him about Cornelius using a parallel description of, to the one that we read about used by Luke in, in uh, 10, 1 and 2. That Cornelius is a centurion, that he is an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. Now remember, he was well-spoken of by the Jews, but he was still a Gentile. And these men also relay the vision that Cornelius had been, had been given, the instructions where he was to, they were to go and to get Peter and to bring him back to Caesarea. Again, that's the, the first repetition of this vision. And Peter invited them now to be, to be guests at the house of Simon. So it seems that, that Peter's sensitivities are softening to the Lord's command. Even though it would have been easier to avoid becoming unclean by hosting a Gentile than it would be by going to a Gentile's house, because of the vision on the roof and the Spirit's command, Peter's having Gentiles stay under the same roof. Again, it it's, indicates that he's beginning to understand. What, what God was saying to him about the clean and unclean animals. So the fourth scene in this passage, Peter's conversation with Cornelius in, in ten twenty three b to 33. It's Peter's conversation with Cornelius. The next day, Peter began the journey with them from Joppa to Caesarea. He, he took men from the church to go with him as witnesses. And in Acts eleven twelve, he says that there were six men The journey from Joppa to to Caesarea was about 50 or so kilometers. So so they would have had to stay somewhere overnight along the way, and then they would have arrived the next day. Now when they got to Cornelius' house, we find out that Cornelius was expecting them. But Cornelius was not just expecting a delegation. He's expecting something much, much more meaningful. and so meaningful that he's gathered his relatives and and friends to come to hear what Peter was going to say. So when Peter arrived, Cornelius came down to meet him and fell down at his feet and worshiped Peter. Now this could mean that he, he simply bowed to the ground um, out of respect. However, Peter's response suggests that Peter literally or sorry, that Cornelius rather, literally wanted to worship him. Peter lifted him up saying, "Stand up, I too am a man." Paul is going to face a, a similar problem in Acts 14. Now, as an aside, I think this, this is, provides a, as a good warning to us. We need to be very careful in our celebrity culture not to pick a celebrity pastor and to listen almost exclusively to that man. In addition to your lowly pastor... Find a range of of faithful expositors. Emphasis on faithful. Emphasis on expositor. And read and and listen to them. But again, always be a Berean, measuring everything they say according to the word of God. As as Protestant Christians, we don't have a pope. So pick a range of men and a faithful expositor, expositing men, and listen to them. And I recommend that you would choose primarily from among dead pastors because they are not going to apostatize and they're not going to be scandalized. Furthermore, if you choose from a range of of eras, it will help you to avoid personal and cultural blind spots. Again, that's just an aside. As Peter and Cornelius talked, he He went into Cornelius' house. Now, don't skip over the significance of this. He went into Cornelius' house. Any any Jews who are reading, you go, He actually went into the house of a Gentile. This was a new development in the history of the church. And Peter here began by saying, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now as we discussed last week, associating with or visiting a Gentile was not unlawful biblically but by implication. Because of the uh, the link between fellowship and food in that culture, visiting a Gentile would almost certainly have meant becoming ceremonially unclean. And such fellowship was not directly prohibited by the scriptures. However, practically and by extension, It, it often would have been. But it's interesting that the apocryphal uh, Jubilees 22 16 reads, separate yourself from the nations and eat not with them. Do not do according to their works and become not their associate for their works are unclean. All their ways are a pollution and an abomination and uncleanness. And so you can see how it's it has gone from, from direct biblical precept to, to application that goes beyond the word of God. This whole thing in the, in the sense of, of separating yourself from the nations in general was not commanded by God's word. It was from their practices. It, it was from, the, the, again, initially the unclean foods, but um, from their Gentile practices, the, the, the pagan worship. Remember, the Jews were to be light to the Gentiles. As we talked about last week, God had promised Abraham that, that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And, and in Isaiah, I believe it's 47, he says, you will be a light to the Gentiles. But but the Jews had, had rejected the Gentiles altogether and, and forgotten about the Gentiles altogether. I think this is actually a good warning to us. It's easy for us to to apply we, we don't want to be, be become part of we're told to have no, in Ephesians to have have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness, but, but rather to approve them. We're also warned that, that we're we're told not to separate from, from to be to be separate, but but again from the practices, not from, from all sinners, because again, in order to, to become separate from sinners, you need to leave the world. And so often we can get focused in our own little holy huddle and we will reject people who, who we think are, are sinful beyond saving. Remember, apart from the grace of God, you too and I am sinful beyond saving. And so we are to, again, to avoid what they do but not avoid them altogether. Rather, go to them. Show hospitality to them. Show them the love of Christ. Show them how Christ makes a difference in your life. Welcome your unbelieving neighbor. Invite even the, even the people that, that you think are, are wicked beyond saving into your house. Give with wisdom, but invite them. Show the hospitality of Christ to them don't make the same mistake that that these Jews are making. What Peter was still failing to understand here was that Jesus had already repealed the cleanliness laws. Back in Mark chapter 7, when Jesus said that it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, but what comes out of you, from out of the heart, that makes a person unclean. And Luke says in his editorial comment, by this he declared all foods clean. Luke hadn't written his gospel account yet, and so Peter hadn't put it all together. But Peter's beginning to understand the vision that he'd received was not ultimately about food, but about people. It was about the doors that the food laws had closed, now being swung wide open by the grace of God. Since God has called has called these people who, sorry, since God had called this food that was once unclean, he's called it now clean. He's opened the door for table fellowship. And even, as we'll see later, gospel fellowship. In verses 30 to 32, Cornelius now reiterates his divine message that he received from the vision. This is the second repetition. And he concludes by inviting Peter to speak, saying we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. What a great invitation to preach. Fifth scene, Peter's sermon, 1034 to 43. Peter now preaches the gospel to the gathered crowd. There are five key parts to his message. One, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Peter begins by saying that God shows no partiality. And now it's obvious that Peter has begun to understand fully. God chooses for himself people from among all nations. Anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable is is right and acceptable to him. But listen carefully. This is not, I repeat, this is not works based salvation. Those who are truly saved are saved by faith alone, not by works so that no one could boast. We need to understand the the law-gospel distinction. Fearing God and good works are evidence for salvation. They are not the cause of salvation. That's the point of of James. Sit down. If If you're struggling with these things, sit down and read James. But read James in light of also reading Galatians. So you get both sides of of the story. In verse 43, Peter will show that fearing God means laying hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news about Him and the promise of forgiveness. That's what it means to truly fear God. He says the good news came first to, to Israel. But Jesus Christ, as Peter declares, is Lord of all. He's Lord of Jew. He is Lord of Gentile. In the second part of his sermon, he talks about Jesus' life and ministry. Peter now speaks about what Jesus did in Judea. Even, even these Gentiles in Caesarea, far from Jerusalem and, and far from Galilee, had heard about it. Remember, Philip, the evangelist, was there in Acts 9.1. He's still going to be there. He probably was in Caesarea at this very moment. He's still going to be there in Acts 21.8. Uh, when when Paul arrives there. And it's very likely that Philip had had already evangelized many of the people in this community. Peter here goes through Jesus' ministry. He begins with with Jesus' baptism and his anointing with the Holy Spirit and with power. He tells them that Peter himself was a witness of the good works that that Jesus did in his healing ministry and his demonstration of his unity with, with God. And the fact that that he was, in his ministry, was overcoming the works of the devil, which Jesus had declared at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. Really, by implication, this is the fulfillment of the great commandment, that Jesus Christ, in his ministry, was loving God and loving others perfectly. The third point of his sermon is Jesus' crucifixion. Peter here recounts how, how Jesus was, was put to death by being hung on a tree. And this is a, a quote from, from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, where, where when somebody was, was executed by being hung on a tree, they were to be taken down because, uh, by the end of the day because, a curse, because there would be a hanged man who was cursed by God. Paul will quote this in Galatians 3.13, saying Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. And this issue, this this the fact that a person was, was hanged, and that, that Christ was is told to have been have been hanged on the cross, hung on a tree, by Christians is a stumbling block. And you notice this particularly in a conversation with Muslims, who actually believe that Jesus Christ was, in fact, sinless, that he was righteous. And so they believe that it was impossible for him to have been hung on a tree because of Deuteronomy 21. And so they believe that somehow that Judas or somebody else took Jesus' place on the cross. It's a stumbling block for them. They do not understand, though, that this is the heart of the gospel. That Jesus Christ was cursed when he was hung on the tree. That he bore the wrath, he bore the curse that we deserve. He was cursed by God so that we don't have to be cursed by God, so that we can be blessed by God as he extinguished the wrath of God on the cross for our place. This is the heart of the gospel. And the fourth point of his sermon, Jesus' resurrection, but God raised him on the dead, from the dead on the third day. And so his his dereliction has become his vindication. His horrific death and seeming defeat was his ultimate victory. He defeated the world and the flesh and the devil for us and for the glory of God. And then Peter says that Jesus, risen from the grave, appeared to his chosen witnesses, especially the apostles who ate and drank with him after his resurrection. And the fifth point and final point of his sermon the judgment activity of Jesus at the end of the age. Peter says that the apostles were commanded to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus Christ is the one who who was appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. So Jesus Christ is the holy and righteous judge. He, He must condemn and he must punish sin either on the head of the unbeliever or upon himself for those who place their faith in him. For as Peter testifies, the Old Testament prophets, prophets bear witness of the fact that all who believe in him receive forgiveness through his name. So it said that was Peter's fifth point. There, there, there might have been a sixth point, but he doesn't get there because he's interrupted. The sixth scene, Cornelius' conversion, Acts 10, 44 to 48. This really is the the climax of the passage. This has been referred to as the Gentile Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit now fell on all who heard the word. This really is presented as evidence that they were now born again. They had not just been filled with the Spirit, they'd been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They'd been given new hearts, new hearts of, of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But the Jews among them were shocked that the Holy Spirit had now been poured out on Gentiles. If they would have been, been shocked at Peter going into Cornelius' house, they were far more shocked that the Holy Spirit had gone into these Gentiles. But they shouldn't have been. This was part of Joel's prophecy that we looked at back, when we looked at the day of Pentecost back in, in Acts chapter 2. Joel's prophecy of, two, of uh, Joel 2.28, it shall come to pass afterward that i will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Not only kings and priests and prophets would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but all Christians would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. All Christians, even Gentile Christians, even us, would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But again, through their their traditional, their cultural myopia, they didn't see that. They didn't see that. And so these Gentiles... Spoken tongues. Now, I went into depth on this in my sermon on Acts chapter 2, but but these were actual discernible languages praising God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Now, this is very similar language as that of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8.36. Peter's saying that, that since they've received the Holy Spirit, there's nothing to prevent them from being baptized. They've, been, they've become part of the church through the, the redeeming, regenerated, redeeming work of Christ, and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and now they belong to the church, and so there was nothing that prevented them from being baptized and becoming visibly part of the church. Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They would declare their union with Christ as they were baptized. The whole trinity is operating here. God takes initiative in orchestrating the events, calling these Gentiles to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit does the work in the hearts, and the Lord Jesus Christ did the work in saving them. This is the fourth outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, and each time is different, showing that, that the the work of the Holy Spirit is not programmatic. He didn't work in exactly the same way in each time. And notice that this time they were baptized after receiving the Holy Spirit. This is this is uh, this is different than what's happened before. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius was a man of Social status on the the fringes of Judaism, but had now been brought near in Christ. Cornelius, particularly, was was a Roman like Theophilus, the one to whom Luke wrote this account. Very very important is this this conversion of this this high, this man, this Gentile man of of high standing. You think of Luke's authorial intent in writing this account. But now, as as we close, I I want to recount the the church's response in, in 11, 1 to 18. Again, much of this involves the repetition of previous events, so I'm going to go through it pretty quickly. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Word got around. Word got around that the word had gotten around to the Gentiles. And the whole church found out about it. Not just one local church, but all the churches. What, what was the response? You, you'd think that people, praise God. People are getting saved. Even Gentiles are getting saved. What a, a glorious God. That's not the response. It's not the response of some. The circumcision party criticized Peter. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. I wonder what would the response be of some of us if we were to see us sitting down with, with, with a notoriously wicked sinner in our community? Would we cast judgment on our brother or sister for this? Would we say, you went and ate with that person? What were you thinking? I would hope that in that moment when you're tempted to think that, that you will remember this and withhold judgment. This is really also a reflection, isn't it, of the, the church's initial rejection of Saul and its conversion. I'm reminded of Proverbs eighteen thirteen. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. They should have asked questions. They should have thought biblically instead of making rash judgments. They were more concerned with their traditions than they were with what the Lord is doing. And they thought they were being biblical. So who is the circumcision party? Again, all the, the, the men in that, in that church, those, the churches would have been circumcised, but, but the circumcision party here refers to, to as Dennis Johnson says, it go, those who went beyond being circumcised themselves, the turn points to the group who are adamant that Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ must also undergo convert, circumcision in order to join the church. The circumcision party, these were the Judaizers. These are the ones who said that you need to become a Jew in every way in order to become a Christian. Now we hear about these folks again in Galatians chapter 2. Let's go there for a minute. Galatians chapter 2, these, those who are studying the, uh, the the men's and women's study, men's and women's studies on Galatians are, are, are very familiar with this. I hope we're all familiar with this. But the, the circumcision party, they, they were... They went in, um, and you see this at the beginning of chapter 2. They, they, these, they were proclaiming the gospel among the Gentiles, in order, and Paul, uh, Paul confirmed this, but then even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. It was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in as spiral at the freedom we have in Christ, so that they might bring us into slavery, would not yield in submission to them, even for a moment." so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In other words, he, he's saying here that if they said, okay, we'll go along with you. We'll, we'll, okay, we'll, we'll do this. We'll get circumcised to, to, to show we're actually Christians. Then they're actually, they're actually creating a whole new religion. We're going back to an old religion. We're not going to submit to this. But now look here. And who got swept up in that? Down in, in verse 7. Again, Peter had been entrusted with the gospel of the circumcised. Okay, but then down again, he says that in verse 11: in verse when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came with James, he was eating with the Gentiles as he'd been commanded to do by the Holy Spirit. When they came, these Judaizers, this circumcision party, verse 12, when they came, he separated himself out of fear of the circumcision party. He fell back into his own ways again. He fell back into his old ways again, these ways that he had been commanded expressly, explicitly by God to reject and he even swept other people, including Barnabas, got swept up in this. But Paul rebuked him in the presence of the others. And praise God that, that Peter repented. Again, if you need to be aware of the, of the tendencies that you have in yourself, the tendencies like, like Peter had, and, and whatever they are. Just be aware that just when you, when you think that, that, that whatever sin is, is dead and laid to rest... Be very, very careful. Let he who stands take heed lest he fall. Because that very thing, was a besetting sin in your early life, can come back at a time when you least expect it and when it can do the most damage. Do not rest on your laurels. But be vigilant in prayer. Be vigilant in standing against sin, especially in your own life. Especially in your own life. Again, Peter, he held the same wrong view as these men in the circumcision party before. He also had judged before hearing. But at this point, thankfully, he gets it. Again, this was not biblical. It was not biblical. This, this was tradition. He should have understood what God's purpose for the cleanliness laws were. They were so that they would not be defiled by Gentile Pagan practices, not to avoid them altogether. So now Peter responds to this criticism, to this accusation by recounting what took place from his perspective. First, repeating what happened with his vision, and then the men coming to him from Cornelius, and the Spirit's command for him to go with them. Remember what I said earlier, the Spirit commanded him not just to, to not to hesitate, but to make no distinction. So then Peter tells these Jewish Christians about the Holy Spirit's descending upon the gathered Gentiles. And here he talks about at the beginning. He remembers at the beginning what had taken place. What happened to these guys is like what happened to us at the beginning in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It says down in verse 16, and I remember the word of the Lord, how he said that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is is new information for us that Peter here is remembering what what John the Baptist spoke about, about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in, in Luke chapter 3, 16. And it was also proclaimed by Jesus in Acts 1, 5. And it clicked for him, he understood what it meant. And so he commanded them to be baptized. He says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is an authority that we shouldn't argue with. Even though he himself had three times argued with the Holy Spirit. But just notice here as we reflect on this passage that, that Peter doesn't mention Cornelius by name. And Peter also does not, does not mention the Lord's commendation of of Cornelius by the angel. Now just think about this from a human perspective. If you're being cornered by, by these guys and someone says, you went and you ate with Cornelius? Wouldn't the temptation be? But, but he was commanded by God. He was a good guy. It's okay to eat with them. He was almost a Jew. But he doesn't do that. Why not? I, I think it's because what's taking place here is not just about Cornelius. It's about Gentiles in general. It's even about us. Nor is it only about Gentiles who are commended by the Lord. That's about us. Now, I don't know about you, but before I came to faith, there was nothing where I could have been commended by the Lord. I was living in utter depravity before coming to the Lord. So, so by, by not mentioning Cornelius directly here, or, or and by not talking about his commendation by God, it, it's, it's showing that, that we can be in this as well. We're part of this. We get part of this benefit as well. Even Gentiles like us. As we begin to draw to a close here, you see, given the response of the existing church, you can really see why Luke was so careful to show how God had, had opened the door wide to the Gentiles. We're talking about millennia of separation and hostility that needed to be overcome. You know, this segregation, the segregation is horrible, as horrible as it was in the American South had nothing on this. You can't think about what this meant for Theophilus, the original recipient of, of, of the book of Acts. It meant that even he, a Gentile, could be accepted through the blood of Christ. We also need to remember what it means for us that we who are once far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ. That we also have fellowship with each other through the blood of Christ. That we're welcome at the Lord's table because of Christ. That we welcome each other at the Lord's table because of Christ. Again, you, if you understand the reality that, that you have and I have nothing more to commend ourselves before God today than we did when we first came, Than when we first came to faith. Nothing. The only righteousness that we have is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't deserve this table. I don't deserve this table. But Christ deserves this table. And because of Christ, we can celebrate at this table. We are welcome at the Lord's table, and we welcome each other at the Lord's table because of Christ, because of what Christ has done. We are accepted because of God's grace poured out upon us. And we can rejoice that God's grace has been poured out on our brothers and sisters as well. We have fellowship with God, and we have fellowship with uh, with each other because of what this represents. So we are told to examine ourselves, to to make sure that we believe in reality what the gospel is, that we are actually truly walking in faith, living by faith, even repenting by faith. And that is evidence. We're not saved because of our repentance, but repentance is evidence of real salvation. If that's you, then you are welcome to come and to eat and drink together to celebrate all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. To celebrate, again, not just what what Christ has done for us as individuals, but what Christ has done for us corporately in this local church and with all of our brothers and sisters around the world and throughout history. We're showing the, the unity that we have with all who are truly trusting in Christ. Can you celebrate with us what Christ has done? Can you rejoice with us what, in what Christ has done? Can you preach the gospel to each other? What Christ has done as you eat and drink together in Christ. Now in a moment, we're going to go down and we're going to to pray for the bread. We're going to pray for the cup, but I'm just going to pray initially, even now. Try and God, we praise you for the glorious gospel. Heavenly Father, for your election, we did nothing to deserve your salvation, but you set your love upon us for the glory of your name. You sent your son to die for our sins. Lord Jesus, you lived the life that we've never lived and you died the death we deserve to die so that in you we can become the righteousness of God as our sin was imputed to you and as your righteousness was imputed to us. Holy Spirit, we praise you for your work of regeneration that you have granted us. If you made us born again, you have worked in us so that we would believe, and receive all that Christ has done. You have applied his once-for-all sacrifice to us and to our account. And you are guiding us and leading us towards Christ. You are continually making us more like Christ for the glory of Christ and for the building of his church. Do that even now in us as we celebrate the table together. May this be a means of grace that helps us as we feast on all that Christ has done for us. Help us, Lord, to grow in Christ and to be more like Christ. Amen.